0: Good morning. Uh, I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute. Welcome to Cato's 30th Annual Monetary Conference. Uh, We're glad to have you here, and I hope you have a good day. Um, We appreciate uh, your attendance. Uh, One of the main goals of this conference has been to increase understanding uh, of the importance of stable money um, and the danger of erratic money, uh, both for prosperity and freedom. Uh, Thus, one of our goals has been to explore alternatives to government fiat money, or rather discretionary government fiat money in particular. Uh, All the conference proceedings have been published in the Cato Journal, uh, which I edit. Uh, So if you're interested, it's online. All you need to do is go to Cato's website, www.cato.org, and then go to the Cato Journal. Uh, I'd like to take a moment to pay a tribute to an old friend, Anna Anna Schwartz, who many of you know. Uh, She was one of the world's foremost economic historians specializing in money and banking. Uh, She passed away in June at the ripe old age of 96, and she continued working almost right to the end. In fact, she worked for the National Bureau of Economic Research in New York City uh, for 70 years, Uh, and I I met her son at the... uh, at the funeral in New York, and he said he was embarrassed to retire because his mother was still working.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, Anna, of course, is the author with Milton Friedman of the landmark book, a Monetary History of the United States, which was published in 1963. Uh, Thirty years ago, at Cato's first monetary conference, uh, which was called The Search for Stable Money, uh, Anna argued that both theory and empirical evidence show a close connection between economic stability and monetary stability. In fact, uh, she said that discretionary monetary policy is unsystematic, uh, which is certainly an understatement. It causes uncertainty and instability, and we still have that uh, in the system, obviously. Prior to her death, in fact, she was very critical of the Fed's ultra-low interest rate policy and the expansion of its powers. Uh, She held, quote, no bank is too big to fail, and I guess she might even include there the central bank. Uh, she was a courageous, independent-minded scholar and a first-class human being, and uh, I know we'll miss her a lot. Uh, today as I said, there's no monetary rule of any kind, no long-run fiscal rules as well. Uh, monetary policy is strayed into fiscal policy. And the Fed's ultra-low interest rate policy has distorted relative prices and misallocated credit, uh, while lowering the return to savings and pushing investors into risky assets. Uh, quantitative easing is continuing to enlarge the Fed's balance sheet, uh, but it's had little impact on the unemployment rate, which should not be surprising. Uh, the key, key questions that we like to look at at Cato is the role between the state and the market. and uh, and therefore the state and the individual, uh, but also the role of the state and money. Uh, F.A. Hayek, whom this auditorium is named after, uh, said, and I quote, all those who wish to stop the drift towards increased government should concentrate their effort on monetary policy. So he obviously thought it was very important, as we do at Cato. Uh, And that's been the motivation for this conference. Uh, Today, we continue that search for stable money And our distinguished speakers will focus on four things, basically, how to avoid another financial crisis, the limits of monetary policy, lessons from the Euro crisis, and ending financial repression in China, which is our final panel. Well, let's get started. We're honored to have as our keynote speaker uh, Vernon Smith, who's a longtime friend of Cato, and of course, a Nobel laureate in economics uh, for his groundbreaking work in experimental economics. That's what we know about Vernon. What you may not know about Vernon is that he was born in Wichita before the Great Depression. Uh, So he must have started writing and doing research when he was about 10 years old. Uh, He began school in a rural, one-room schoolhouse. Uh, And like Jim Buchanan, lived on a farm, at least for a while. Uh, And I figured his theme song should be, I Did It My Way. He's a very independent uh, person uh, and uh, it's nice to see that. Uh, he got his undergraduate degree in electrical engineering from Caltech. He's gonna be a, a scientist and then switched to economics. Uh, he then went to the University of Kansas, got his bachelor's degree and then uh, went to Harvard, got his PhD in economics. Uh, his job at Purdue, uh, Started his work in experimental economics, and again, that was against the tide. Uh, Nobody was really doing that at that point. Uh, And uh, I really recommend his autobiography, Discovery, a Memoir, uh, which is well worth reading. Uh, And, of course, Vernon's surname fits him well. He's a student of Adam Smith and a scholar interested in the powerful idea of spontaneous or emergent order. And we put this slide up here, which is one of my favorite quotes from Vernon, it was in the American Economic Review uh, several years ago. Uh, And of course, spontaneous or emergent order depends upon freedom and the rule of law. Thus, uh, Vernon's a professor of economics and law at Chapman University. Uh, He also works with the Economic Science Institute at Chapman. he is a co-author of more than 250 articles in scholarly journals. I remember uh, a long time ago, I was reading the American Economic Review. He had two articles in, in one issue, which is, uh, uh, sets some type of record. He's past pres- president of the Public Choice Society, the Western Economic Association, the Association for Private Enterprise Education. In addition to teaching at Purdue, Vernon has been on the faculty at Brown University, University of Massachusetts, University of Arizona, and of course, George Mason University. He's been a Ford Foundation fellow, a distinguished fellow of the American Economic Association, and the recipient of the 1995 Adam Smith Award. Uh, He's also a senior fellow at Cato and a fellow of the Mercatus Center at GMU. Uh, In 1995, he was elected a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and he's also received Caltech's Distinguished Alumni Award in 1996. Please help me welcome Vernon Smith. Uh, well, thank you very much,
2: Jim. It's a great pleasure to be here. And you know when you're my age and you say that, you mean it. Uh, I want to introduce my uh, co-author and co-worker, uh, Steve Gerstadt. Steve, if you'd stand up. Uh, Steve is going to be around for the entire conference. Unfortunately, I'm... Uh, not able to, when Jim asked me to take this on, I said, well, I've got an event in Tucson <laughs> the next day. I don't know whether I can do it, but but we uh, were able to make the uh, arrangements to, for me to come. And I, you know, I, I was thinking flying in. I've known uh, Ed Crane for 35 years. I met Ed in, at Rio Rico Uh, uh, conference in Arizona in 1977, Uh, Rio Rico was a uh, bankrupt uh, resort uh, in Nogales, Arizona. In those days, uh, Cato got by by getting rooms in bankrupt resorts. And, uh, but a bankrupt resort sets the stage for my talk today as indeed uh, I flew in on a bankrupt airline and (laughs) service was never better. (laughs) It's, uh... oh, and also met, see, I met Charles Koch at that meeting and all I don't know, a bunch of the libertarians of, of the day. I remember Earl uh, Ravenel being there, and, and of course, Ed always was uh, respectful of other views, and so sure enough, Alan Greenspan was brought in Saturday night to give the after-dinner speech, so I met Alan Greenspan 35 years ago. Okay, uh, let's see. Okay, there, here's a, I'll give you a brief, uh, summary: This is really about this is about balance sheet crunches, severe ones. They, uh, fortunately, they only happen about once every 80 years, and I think one of our problems is we're not accustomed to thinking about that world because it's a very different world, and uh, the. And it's the widespread prevalence of of low or even negative equity that is the basic uh, problem. And I want to show you some evidence <clears throat> of this imbalance. Uh, and 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 the source of the problem: housing. It's always housing. Uh, but I'm going to begin with the uh, the housing uh, market and the mortgage credit expansion in the 21 to 28, and then again, 97 to 2005. I want to talk a little bit about stocks versus housing because stocks, you see, do not blindside the economy the way housing uh, mortgage markets do, do. And this is really kind of the exception that proves what I call the ratchet rule. And then I want to talk a little about, I'll show you one chart from 1920 to 1910 uh, or 11 that uh, I think dramatically shows you the, the uh, what we call the housing Fed-inspired uh, 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 consumer cycle. And I'm going to just focus on one of In our book that Steve and I are doing, we, we, we cover all the recessions, all 14 of them since the Great Recession. But I I will show you a slide for the the, the double-dip recession of 80-82. And then I want to talk about three responses. These are all very painful. But there's three fundamental ways of handling balance sheet problems. One is bankruptcy and default. That's the fundamental way to do it. This this is is the fundamental repair process when you have broken uh, balance sheets. It's by and large not what we do. Rather, we protect incumbent investors. Uh, They don't want to face default. They don't want to lose their money. They're powerful. They're obviously a powerful political influence. The new investors are going to come in in recovery. We don't even know who they are yet, so they're not there to to lobby. And then, uh, because there's so little experience in the United States, Steve and I have gone to other countries, and uh, there uh, a mechanism that is very common in, in with countries with flexible uh, currencies is depreciation. Okay, and I'm talking about market depreciation. I'm not talking about devaluation in the sense of uh, uh, central policy. And I'm going to show you some uh, at least three of many slides we have the, the, for Finland, Thailand, and Iceland give you an idea of the mechanism of recovery from severe balance sheet crunches in those countries. Okay, uh, proposition one, depression and the Great Recession, uh, we see as disequilibrating housing mortgage market booms, fueled by massive flows of mortgage credit and the use of what Adam Smith called other people's money. This is the uh, Great Depression. And notice here, uh, all of these various uh, measures of, uh, of of national output are all normalized on the first year of the depression, 1929. So all of these various measures are being computed as a percentage of their of their level in 1929. And this is, the the top one here. See, that is non-durable consumption, because we separate non-durable consumption from durables. Here's gross product. Uh, uh, Business investment and housing are separated out. And non-durables, I want to say something. I want to relate this very briefly to uh, laboratory experiments. The first experiments I did beginning in January 1956, in the first paper in 1962, uh, uh, I was looking, asking the question of what, whether with completely decentralized information a market could find the equilibrium. Where I knew the equilibrium, the equilibrium was, in, it was implicit in the pattern of values and costs of the given buyers and sellers. Uh, <clears throat> Of course, I didn't believe it worked, but I, was, uh, I, I believe the stuff that William Stanley Jevons wrote in the 1870s was false. Um, the propensity to truck, barter, and exchange is alive and well, and that's the basic axiom that, that gives you price discovery. And that came out in that very first experiment, right? and that, those have been, of course, replicated hundreds of times. I mentioned that. Because I now realize, and, and looking back on those early experiments, this, those are perishables. Why? Because when a buyer and a seller trades, we immediately log the surplus into their account. The buyer's surplus is earned, and he gets it right away. The seller's surplus is earned, and he gets it right away. That's exactly like hamburgers and haircuts. OK? Those markets are very, very special. In Fortunately, they're very large. If you you subtract government expenditures from gross product to get private product, non-durables are 75% of the private sector. It's very, very important. Those markets have the characteristic that when you go to market, you already know whether you're a buyer or seller. You know whether you fry hamburgers or whether you want to buy them. Okay, that information is not trivial. Because in things that can be retraded, whether you're a buyer or seller, very much depend upon the price. That's certainly true in the stock and security markets and it's true in housing markets. And that's where the trouble comes from. All the trouble comes from the fact that the thing can be, that can be retraded, and that sets the stage for the possibility of, of unsustainable, self-reinforcing expectations of price increases and that happened. That's one of the oldest stories uh, uh, in humanity. Uh, The the difference in the latest uh, uh, housing mortgage market fiasco was it was national. Usually these things are are local. So at the other extreme of that is housing. Is that better? Sorry. (laughs) I I could hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Housing, you know, I I live in Orange, California. And every week or so, a house, a sign, someone puts a sign on a house. It says, I'm 100 years old. Orange is filled up with houses that are 100 years old. So, when you build stuff, that can last a hundred years, and you finance them with funny money, you just ask them for trouble, big time trouble, and that's what this really this talk is all about. Uh, So here's housing expenditures, annual housing expenditures, starting here at uh, the same level in 1922 that they were in 1929. Uh, Housing expenditures rise 60% in 1922, 3, 4, 25, it's 60% higher. 26, it's it's still 60%. And then it starts now. Notice it drops three straight years before the Depression comes. Uh, Now, in the next, next slide, whoops. Here's uh, the flow of mortgage credit. OK, this is from 1900 to 1940. And here's a trend line fit to the 1897 and 1922 part. Uh, notice here <clears throat> that from 1922 to 1925, there's a 200% increase in the flow of mortgage credit. And it holds steady at 200% above its 22 level one, two, three, four years before it starts down. 25, uh, you see in 26, 27, housing expenditures are already falling, but the uh, flow of mortgage credit is staying up. Where's that going? It's increasing leverage. There's no place else for it to go, either in existing uh, homes or uh, in new homes. So leverage was building up before the crash in 1929. And then of course here, uh, Mortgage credit goes negative here here's the zero line between thirty and thirty one it goes negative and it doesn't get positive again until nineteen uh, here 19, 1930, 30, 38. and that story has been repeated uh, today now here's the great recession. Uh, Uh, We've dropped consumption, uh, uh, non-durable consumption here, in order to clean up the chart a little bit so you can see the the rest of it. And we've added uh, unit sales of homes. Uh, That's the top line, as well as annual expenditures on new homes. Notice here that seven quarters before the... uh, Fourth quarter of 2007, when the recession started, housing is in a steady plummet, declining. Uh, unit sales started down before that. And notice here, it's, it's uh, 70% nearly above its 2000, uh, uh, fourth quarter of 2007 level. And then falls here to about 60% and is going nowhere. We have a little, a little bump here because of the, uh, you know, the problem had been too much stimulus of housing. So what's the solution? More stimulus of housing. Okay, that's the solution if it's a problem, right? Well, we got just a little bit of bump with the subsidies. I spoke in uh, Western Washington uh, in 2009. And the the concern I expressed, there was lots of people going out to buy homes because they got an $8,000 tax subsidy, and and my concern was they were buying too soon. That market was not in equilibrium. You know, it rose 85% faster than than the prices of all other goods, and it was sustained by credit, and the only way to get that back into equilibrium is either for the prices of everything else to come up, good luck on that in creating any inflation, or else the houses had to come down. Uh, Uh, Let's see. Okay, that's enough of that one. And here's the flow of of mortgage credit from 1970 to 2010. And you'll notice here there's a, a... there's a bubble here in mortgage credit in the late 70s. Well, uh, the inflation-adjusted price, uh, median price of homes, uh, peaked in 1979. That bubble peaked out in '79. Then the flow of mortgage credit again surges up, and we had another peak in in 1989. And then uh, housing didn't begin to recover. Uh, recover until 1997, that was the year that we had very strong bipartisan support for making us all rich by doing away with the, t- the capital gains on housing uh, up to $500,000. <clears throat> uh, and so here's the surge in mortgage credit. The, uh, it peaks out here in 2005 Uh, uh, Homes, home prices rose through 2005 and then basically flattened in 2006 and then plummeted. Oh, and then, now if you take this, the difference between that red line and the trend, replot that down here, think of that as the excess flow. Of mortgage credit, okay, excess or deficiency around that trend line, and then plotted on the same graph here we have uh, the uh, the flow of foreign foreign funds into the United States, and you can see that that's of comparable magnit- magnitude, and a lot of that money was going directly into the housing in the sense of buying Fannie and Freddie. The Chinese knew those were guaranteed and they were buying them like they were <coughs> going out of style. Uh, this is a kind of an interesting chart in that it uh what it plots here is uh total residential mortgage debt outstanding. The blue line here is the sum of Fan and Fred, okay? So that's the uh uh the uh, combined enterprises, and here remember I said that the housing bubble starts off and took off just after 19. It uh, it reached a low and started up in 1997. So this think of this as kind of a baseline with both total debt rising uh, gently and also uh, the uh, the GSEs, and then these both kink upward after 1997. Uh, there's an even bigger kink, uh, a second one, in the difference between total residential debt outstanding and the, and the combined enterprises. And then uh, remember that prices peak out in 2006 and start, <clears throat> and start down. So we see here really two very uh, distinct phases in this bubble, and in 2001, if you look at the inflation-adjusted price of homes, in 2001, uh, prices had were risen had risen above their previous 89 1989 peak. So we had a really first-class bubble going on by 2000. We already had a historical bubble bubble by late 2001. <clears throat> Okay, uh, leverage cuts far deeper on the downside than on the upside, and there's a couple of charts here for illustrating that. This is the total value residential, all homes in the United States. Uh, Just to give you some perspective, in 2006, homes were roughly a third of all wealth. Another third was in all listed uh, securities, public companies, and then the other third is basically everything else—private companies and mom-and-pop stores and and so on. So uh, at that time, it was about a third of that of that uh, total. Well, <clears throat> so here here you have the rise. <coughs> Total value of all homes, and that's partly existing homes, uh, prices going up, and partly new homes, of course, being new assets being pumped into the into the stock. <clears throat> and then here's debt rising with it, s- somewhat slower because of, of course that's being mixed in. This is the aggregate, it's not at the margin. Uh, and here's debt rising. Okay, prices turn. Flatten in 2006 and 7. start down. Debt is continuing to rise, r- continues to rise 2007, flattens and, and drops just a little bit in 2008. And here's equity. Here's equity really taking a big hit. And so here we are, uh, 1997 to down to the present. That's 15 and a half years Here's equity in all, equity in all homes here. Equity's back up to what it was 15 and a half years ago. How's that for a marvelous performance for a major industry? And we did it, all of us did it. It's very hard to find who's to blame in a bubble. And you see this, uh, we've seen hundreds of them in the laboratory, and when people get caught up in these self-sustaining rising prices, you can't predict the turn down, and, and uh, believe me, we've seen hundreds of them. We know only that more cash makes them worse. If they can borrow, it makes them worse. Uh, if, if you deny money to that system, that's <laughs> that works uh doesn't mean that <clears throat> well let me that's, uh, that uh so it's uh really you know the borrowers sellers, real estate agents uh, uh people that that uh rated. Uh, mortgages, uh, the banks, the government, the regulators. Read Sheila Bair's book. The the regulators are caught up in the same expectation that these prices are going to go higher. It's everywhere. Um, Now, this gives you some idea. This is based upon the Fed's survey of of, uh, consumer finances. first uh, I've just shown here the 2004 to 2007 change and then the recent one just out the change from 2007 to 10. It's both the uh, income change and net worth change. And <clears throat> so you'll see from 2004 to 7, there was no change in median income, but the mean is up eight and a half percent percent. So those above the median, the people who are better off, are doing better than the people below the mean, uh, median in terms of income. But it's just reversed in terms of net worth change. Those below the median are 18% versus 13%. The intention to make the poor better off by getting them into more valuable home was basically working, okay? It was working, but it couldn't last. Here's the period 2007 to 10. Median income goes clear back to what it was uh, uh, in the late 1990s. And also <clears throat> uh, the mean falls uh, even more, but look at the, what happens here on, the, uh, on net wealth. Off 30.8% for people, for the median. Uh, so it was, so this is, this, net worth, Median net worth is now back to what it was in the survey about 1992. Okay, $10 trillion came off the value of stocks in the dot-com crash, 2000, 2002. And it was hardly a dent in the bank balance sheets. We had only a mild recession in 2001, and it really wasn't due to that. Investment had stalled even earlier. And similarly, if you look, say, the crash of October 19, 1987, no recession. 2.2 trillion came off the value of homes, 2000, first quarter 2006 to quarter three 2007, and the banks were in deep trouble. Fed QE zero liquidity moves failed. By the way, what's QE zero? We don't know what else to call it. Uh, The Fed doesn't talk about it anymore. Uh, if you go to Ben Bernanke's, he gave four lectures last March, and you can get his slides. Uh, monetary Ease, QE1, 2, and 3. QE1 begins with the September-October uh, massive intervention uh, in in uh, 2008. Uh, Bernanke from... August 10th, 2007 until pretty much the end of September 2008 was following the Friedman Schwartz recommendation. He was, and he promised it would never happen again, remember? He apologized to Anna and Milton and said it will never happen again and he didn't let it happen again. He created liquidity with the standard uh, uh, tools, and it did nothing because he didn't have a liquidity problem. He had a solvency problem. Steve and I believe there was a solvency problem in 1930. There was already a solvency problem, and we think that whole period needs to be carefully looked at again because we think that in in the light of what happened in the Great Recession. Now, I know Anna has said that this time it was different. (laughs) That the Fed was fighting the last war, which had been a war that involved inadequate liquidity, but now we had a solvency problem. I'm not so sure. I think we had a solvency problem already in 1930. And so that it is not so clear that we would not have been in deep trouble even if we had made important liquidity moves. But anyway, my point here is what's this difference here between uh, the, uh, a big drop in the stock market being absorbed and, and a much smaller amount coming off the value of homes and the banks are in trouble? Well, we went through important rule changes in the late 20s and up into the 30s. Uh, already in 1928, April 1928, brokers were raising reserve requirements or margin requirements from 25 to 50 percent on Dow Jones stocks, and uh, I'm going to have to. Jim is warning me here. I told him to get the hook and pull me out of here. Uh, <clears throat> the we were already having, and and, and the, uh, banks were raising uh, uh, interest rates for for uh, call loans. The New York Stock Exchange then in 1933 required margin requirements for all of the members uh, of the exchange. The SEC codified the margin requirements in 1934. Adam Smith would have loved that. You first have a change in the property rules coming from experience in the private sector, then it's being recognized by an important Uh, private sector institution and then finally being codified in uh, in law. So we had property rights that limited the use of other people's money in uh, the stock market and that together with the call feature, the fact that your, your, your loan can be called within 24 hours means that as the value of stocks come down, the debt comes down with it in step. Quite the contrary to what I showed you with, uh, with housing. <clears throat> By the way, it doesn't keep you from having bubbles in the stock market. It just keeps the rest of the system from getting blindsided from that. That's, you're not going to stop bubbles. I don't think there's any way to do it. They will exist. People will do this. Uh, the important thing is to be sure that they're, that they're quarantined to whoever's doing it that they don't get, uh, get generally uh, into the financial system and then the economic sector. Uh, also, we had a parallel development in mortgage markets. Uh, strong traditions emerged for amortization of mortgage loans. They weren't amortized in the, in the 20s. I'll show you, uh, show you that in a moment. And we lost that tradition. By 2005, 45% of first-time home buyers were making zero down payments. That's 100% OPM. And then, similarly, we had upfront mortgage origination fees that undercut due diligence incentives. You know, the origination fees, there's a simple rule fix for that. Let the market determine. If you want to separate origination and lending, uh, let the market determine the fee. But there's a simple rule. It says the fee has to be spread over uh, in proportion to the principal repayment by borrowers. So if you're going to go out and originate a loan, uh, interest only for 10 years, then there's no fee for 10 years. You've got to wait. How many of those loans would be originated? (laughs) I mean, you don't worry about predatory lending and all that stuff. Get to the heart of the thing. Get down to the incentives. Make that the rule and let the market do the rest. Now, uh, here's uh, commercial banks, you see, making 10 to 15% fully amortized loans. The rest of them were partially or completely unamortized. That means there's a balloon payment. And, and these, by the way, were three- to five-year loans, and they rolled them over. And the, that didn't change until after 19... Uh, uh, 34. And by the way, same thing for insurance companies. Insurance companies were making a relatively short term loans, uh, uh, mortgage loans, and uh, rolling them over. <clears throat> okay, uh, here's the chart. Lots of, here's the last 14 recessions. And 11 of those 14 recessions. Uh, you have you're having a decline in housing as a, uh, a leading that recession, And all recoveries with the exception, if you want to call this a recovery, we're in with the with the exception of this recovery, housing is always coming back after a recession. <clears throat> uh, here's the I'm going to have to hurry up here. Jim's going to pull, pull me out of the slot.
0: You heard it. Right. Right. Leave some time for questions.
2: Okay, I'll leave. A, okay, well, well, I, here's the double dip. Okay, and and well, here's the bottom. Bottom here, you'll see here we got inflation going up, and with it, the effective funds rate is moving up right in step with inflation, hardly having an effect on the inflation rate. But look what it's doing to housing. And then Volker, who was targeting mo- uh, money growth, felt he had overdone it. It was not. It was uh, the the growth had had dropped too much. So he reversed himself, and and that immediately reversed what was happening in the housing. So it's a beautiful. It's almost like a controlled experiment, showing a connection between monetary policy, uh, and the interest con- sensitive component uh, of the market, particularly uh, housing. <coughs> uh, this chart is total assets. Uh, debt and equity, exactly like the other one, but notice these are the milder recessions. So if you, there is no balance sheet crunch, the recession will be smaller. And so uh, in all of these cases, the Fed did not lose control over uh, uh, bringing housing back by lowering interest rates. Completely lost control in the current balance sheet crunch. Okay, how do you achieve escape momentum from deep slumps with large numbers of damaged household bank balance sheets? Well, not with monetary expansion. Inflation might help restore balance sheets, but you can't get it, okay? Not by government deficit spending. That fails for the same reason that monetary expansion fails. There's too many low, empty, or negative equity balance sheet tanks. The one data point, you know, I, uh, 60 years ago this semester, I sat in Alvin Hansen's class. How many of you remember Alvin Hansen? Okay, America's foremost Keynesian. I sat in his class uh, 60 years ago and heard this uh, tale about monetary policy is ineffective and a a really bad reception, you have to depend upon fiscal policy. And the evidence was, the thing that brought us out of the Great Depression was the Second World War and the expansion of the budgets in 1940. No, that's after 10 years of balance sheet repair. Come on. (laughs) We had thousands of bankruptcy, uh, failed banks. We had Almost a million mortgages were marked to the market by the Homeowners Loan Corporation and reissued to homeowners. Huge amount of balance sheet repair. Yeah, if you get the balance sheets work to work, then fiscal policy will work. Monitor, everything will work if you get the balance sheets fixed, but that's what you've got to give your attention to, and that's not what we've been giving our attention to. <clears throat> Okay, I'm going to, uh, hmm. well, bankruptcy default, here, let me go through this very quickly. You mark bank mortgages to market, reset borrowers' principal to market, lower payments to support reduced principal balance if the borrower can pay, otherwise foreclose or short sell the house. Banks recapitalize through private markets, downsize as required, zero out equity, bond haircuts, that's basically what they've done over at the FDIC. Uh, it's what Sweden did and came back uh, quickly. Uh, government guarantees deposits only, not the investors. Now, you get this way you get new capital directly supporting new lending, undiluted, undiluted you see, by, by losses being carried over on, on the balance sheets. And the idea is to remove those balance sheet barriers to lending and borrowing. Uh, this is what we usually do. Uh, this, is the, this is the process of protecting uh, incumbent investors. Uh, you either, the central bank lifts, lifts toxic assets off the balance sheets of banks. That's just kicking the negative equity can from the private sector to the public sector. It's still a drag on future growth and future income. Uh, in, in the banks, you uh, you let them uh, delay taking hits on their balance sheet stretch out loans, lower interest rates. That's just kicking the negative equity can down the road. You're not getting rid of it. And it's a drag on output. It's a drag on recovery. And that's our problems. I'm going to stop now. I will just leave you here with with one one example thailand and and the secret there is the currency depreciation gives you a crescendo of defaults and bankruptcies is most dramatic in iceland uh, that clears the decks, and also with, with that lower depreciation, that depreciated currency, exports start to boom. In all of these cases, both exports and imports boom, so it's not a matter of be- beggaring your neighbor. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.
0: It's intimidating to ask a Nobel laureate to stop, but. Uh, <laughs> And I could listen to Vernon for quite a while, as I'm sure you could. Um, I would like to, if, if you don't mind, uh, if we cut into the break five minutes, it breaks down the line a little bit, but uh, we'll give Vernon another five minutes or so, because I'd like to have him be able to answer a couple of questions. So why don't we take, we only have time for about two questions and have to keep them short. Uh, so if you just raise your hand, the mic will come over and then identify yourself and ask a, a short question to Vernon. Let's see, what's it, right here in the front?
1: Thank you. Uh, I'm Mary O'Grady from the Wall Street Journal. Thank you for your Hi, talk. Hi, Mary. <laughs> Hi, Vern. Um, you, in the very beginning of your talk, you said that fortunately these housing um, events uh, seem to only come about eighty every eighty years, and I was wondering uh, two things about that. One, are you basing that on the Time between uh, the Great Depression and the Great Recession? And secondly, since 1971, it seems like we're, have more, we're having more and uh, more crises, and they're coming, they're bigger and they're coming closer together. And I, w- I, I know they're not housing crises, but they're crises and financial crises. Um, so I was wondering do you think that if we stick with the current uh, monetary model, we might end up having um, that that 80-year that span that you're talking about might uh, not hold?
2: Well, I'm specifically referring to 1929 and 2000, fourth quarter 2007. There's nothing in between that compares with those. It doesn't come even close. And, and it's very clear if you look at these that there's... A, 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 the cycle is an interaction between Fed monetary policy and the housing market. That's what's driving it, okay? And, and I said they only come once every 80 years. I'm talking about uh, primarily the United States. And that's one of the reasons why Steve and I have gone to other countries to look at the crisis because they're more frequent. They're smaller countries, but the pattern is remarkably uh, uh, regular. And if you look at what Sweden did, was, which was just to let the banks fail, okay? Now, they did, uh, they, uh, uh, the banks have basically lost equity, lost all the equity. They did, they did bail out the bondholders. I think that's a mistake. I mean, don't, no, don't even do that because, you know, the incumbent investors took their risks. It didn't work clean up those balance sheets so that new money can flow in there and you can get this thing going again. Don't save any of them, okay? And we tried to save them all. Uh, you know, what? Uh, Citibank was, what, bailed out three times, okay? Bank of America. Bank of America stock is selling, what, 45% of book value, I think? Uh, Citibank, about 55 J.P. Morgan is more like 80 Look at Wells Fargo. It's 125%. Okay, good banks sell for 120, 125% of the book. Investors are not stupid. They know that those uh, that there's a lot of junk on those balance sheets.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Vernon? Yes. Yeah, I think we better stop because uh, the next panel is going to start. I'm sorry we can't go further, but uh, Vernon's paper is available in the packet. Um, and I think the slides, Vernon, uh, will be available if somebody yes. wants to. Yes, oh, yeah. Are oh, you happy to be plagiarized? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's thank Ronnie.